Thanks for being back tonight. It's good to be together, to worship God together, and to study from His Word. This evening, I'd like to spend some time talking with you about the subject of baptism. It is a very polarizing subject in the world today, and it's alarming that it is. Um, I think there are several reasons why it is so um, contentious and why people do not want to uh, admit what the scriptures teach on the subject. But anytime you bring up baptism, you're going to get a lot of pushback from people in the religious world, even though the Bible is clear on its need. And you're going to get a lot of arguments against the requirements of baptism in order to be saved that the scriptures present. A lot of arguments that people are going to throw up to try and tell you that you're wrong for believing that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. These arguments are very repeatable and predictable. And I think it's important for us tonight to look at some of these arguments so we have a better understanding of the arguments and how we can answer those arguments. And so tonight, I'd like to look at these with you. Um, hopefully, uh, this will be helpful. Well, one of the first arguments that you're going to get when you say that we have to be baptized to be saved is a man who was hanging on a cross, the thief on a cross, the infamous or famous thief on the cross and the famous thief on the cross argument. You say we have to be saved, baptized in order to be saved. Well, this looks like an open and shut case because you've got a man who was saved and he was nailed to the cross and he wasn't coming down. And so it's clear that he wasn't baptized, they say. So how could he be saved? If you have to say you have to be baptized in order to be saved, how could this thief be saved? Well, there are a lot of answers to this uh, objection. The first of those is that our baptism today is symbolic of something that it couldn't have been symbolic of for the thief. In Romans, Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, beginning of verse 3, notice what our baptism symbolizes, and it wouldn't have had that symbol to the thief on the cross. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? His death hadn't occurred yet. We're baptized into his death today. The thief couldn't have been baptized into his death. He wasn't dead yet. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. We're baptized into Jesus' death. Our baptism is symbolic of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We die to sin, we're buried, and the new man rises to walk. Baptism does not have, have, would not have had that same symbol to the thief, and it would have not uh, been possible for him to be baptized the way that we're baptized today. I want to tell you, that the confession that we have to make today, or the, our, I'm sorry, our faith that we have to have today is a faith that the thief didn't have. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. We have to have faith that Jesus was raised from the dead to be saved. Did the thief have that faith? No, he didn't have that faith. He couldn't be saved the same way we are today. It's not possible. 
There are other arguments that can be made about the thief. There is an argument made that the thief perhaps had been baptized by John the Baptist or by Jesus at some point or from Jesus' disciples. That's a possibility. It's not necessary to make that argument. And I don't like to make that argument because it is based on a lot of supposition. But the argument goes like this in Luke chapter 23, verse 39, as the thief is hanging there on the cross. One of the criminals who would hang blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now there's some interesting things about this thief and what he says here hanging on the cross. He knew there was a God in verse, 30, in verse 40. Do you not fear God? He had a belief in God. He also knew that you needed to fear God. He Not only did he believe there was a God, he knew that you needed to fear Him. He knew that Jesus was associated with God. He also knew there was something coming beyond death. He wanted Jesus to remember Him. He knew there was something coming beyond death. He knew there was a right and there was a wrong, and he was getting on to the other thief for that. He said, you know, we've done something wrong. He knew there was a right and wrong. He also recognized that Jesus was innocent. He said, this man's done nothing. He knew Jesus was innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He also knew that he was Lord. He called him Lord. And he understood something about Jesus being a king and a kingdom because he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He apparently had been exposed to the gospel he knew Jesus could help him. Now, whether or not he'd been baptized, we don't know, and it doesn't matter because this was before Jesus' death. But it's some interesting things to think about. The thief, though we know, did die under the Old Testament dispensation or was amenable under, uh, he, his, he, he was amenable to the Old Testament law in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, at the time that Jesus forgave his sins, he would have been under the Old Testament law. Colossians 2, verse 14, having wiped out, this is Jesus, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The Old Testament was enforced when Jesus told this thief that he would be with him in paradise. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also be the necessity, the death of the testator, for a testament is enforced after men are dead, since it has no power at all, while the testator lives. He was under the Old Testament at this time. He wasn't under the dispensation that we're under. Furthermore, this was about 40 days before Jesus gave the instruction that we're under today in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Jesus had not given this instruction prior to his death, burial, and resurrection. In Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, he, that, he said to them, Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus had spoken about baptism and the necessity of it, but it was not a requirement under the New Testament dispensation until Jesus gave this command for the apostles to go and proclaim this instruction. And so the thief on the cross, was he saved without baptism? He was saved without the baptism that we're under today. But that's not a problem for us because he didn't live under the same dispensation we live under. 
And furthermore, Jesus could forgive sins while he was here on earth. This isn't the only person that Jesus told your sins are forgiven. He did this numerous times in the New Testament in his, during his life here on earth. And if Jesus were here today, and you could say to Jesus, remember me and when I come to paradise. And Jesus said, you'll be there. Or you'll be with me in paradise. Or you'll be saved. If Jesus could tell us that, that'd be fine. But Jesus told us what we need to do to be saved, didn't he? told us that in Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. We need to do what Jesus said, not try to figure out if there's some way to get around that by looking at a man who was hanging on a cross. Tell you something else that will be thrown in your direction if you say we have to be baptized in order to be saved. And that is, well, you know, you say we have to be baptized to be saved, but passages like John chapter 3, verse 16 just talk about being, believing in order to be saved. And they do, don't they? John chapter 3, John chapter 3, beginning at verse 16, or John chapter 3, verse 16. We don't need verse 17 on there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Does John 3.16 talk about anything other than belief? No, it doesn't. But I want to tell you that the faith that's mentioned here, and we're going to look at, that, look at that here in a little bit more detail as we go along. The faith that's talked about here is a comprehensive faith. A faith that causes you to be obedient, be, obe be obedient. If I told you, if I told you that there was a bomb underneath the podium here and it was going to go off in 60 seconds, and you believed me, but you didn't run out of this building, would you perish? You would, wouldn't you? But if you believed me and you ran out of the building, you wouldn't perish. And that's what we're talking about here with this faith. We're talking about faith that obeys. You know, this passage only mentions belief. There are also other passages that only mention belief. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace by which, in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This isn't the only passage that talks just about faith when it talks about our salvation. Romans 5, verse 2 does. Ephesians 2, verse 8 does as well. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. But again, these are comprehensive faiths that are mentioned here because we have to harmonize this with what all the New Testament teaches. Passages like James chapter 2, verse 24 says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. So is John 3.16 faith only that I just assent to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and I'm saved? No, that wouldn't harmonize with James chapter 2. Verse 24, a comprehensive faith that talks about faith that causes you to obey, well, that works with James 2, 24, doesn't it? And there's no contradiction. I'll tell you, there's other arguments we can use to answer this idea that James, John 3, 16 only talks about believing. Luke 13, 3. Luke 13, 3 talks about repenting. If John 3, 16 means you only have to believe, then that would rule out anything else. It would rule out repentance. But no one is going to be willing to argue that you don't have to repent, or very few people are going to argue you don't have to repent. Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Do you have to repent to be saved? Yes, and most people agree with that. Well, if they agree with that, then they have to take away their argument that John 3, 16 means you only have to believe. What about Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10? Romans 10, verses 9 and 10 talks about confession. Do you have to confess Jesus? 
as the Son of God? Well, certainly you have to do that, most people would say. Well, again, if you have to confess, then John 3.16 doesn't mean you only have to believe. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. You see, we have to take the entirety of the New Testament and do all that the New Testament tells us to do. We have to repent and confess along with our faith, our faith that causes us to be obedient. Another uh, argument that's going to be used as we talk to people about baptism and the requirement for baptism, because we'll likely go to Acts chapter 2, verse 38, where Peter tells the people on the day of Pentecost to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. People are going to say, well, you see there, that word for, that means because our sins are already forgiven. You should repent and be baptized because your sins are already forgiven. Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for their mission sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see here this word for. You guys are getting all worked up about that. We need to repent and be for the, for the remission of sins. You guys are getting all worked up about that. Everybody knows for means because. You know, I could say that last night I had to run to the store for my wife was out of milk. I ran to the store because I needed milk. I ran to the store because we were out of milk at home. You could say that. That works. The word for can mean because of. We need to, uh, we need to get home tonight for we have to get up early in the morning. That's correct grammar and correct English. You could say that. But it doesn't work for this passage. Because the word that is translated here for is the Greek word ice, E-I-S. And that word is never translated because of. That word in the Greek means so you can obtain or unto. Okay, so in this passage, we are repenting and being baptized for or unto the remission of sins so we can obtain the remission of sins. Now also look at this grammatically as well. There's a three-letter word here, and. You need to repent and be baptized in order to have the remission of sins. If this means because you already have the remission of sins, you need to repent and be baptized because you already have the remission of sins, then you repent because you're already, your sins are already forgiven. Do you see that? And then you be baptized for your sins to already be forgiven. But this ice word, this for, is used numerous times in the New Testament. For instance, Romans chapter 10, verse 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 10. It's translated unto here. It's the same Greek word. And that word does mean unto or so you can obtain. Romans chapter 10, verse 10, For with the heart man believeth unto ice righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You believe in order to be righteous, right? You don't believe because you're already righteous. Same Greek word. How about Acts 11, verse 18? In Acts chapter 11, verse 18, When they heard these things, they became silent and glorified God, saying that then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. To or unto or for here. Same word, ice. The Gentiles were granted repentance in order to have life. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
He's the end of the law for, or ice, so we can have righteousness. And finally, Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, which we ought to be able to go to anytime someone brings this argument up to us. The same word, ice, is translated for here, and the same phrase, for the remission of sins, and notice what's connected with it. Jesus, as he's instituting the, new, the, uh, the, the Lord's Supper, said, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many ice, the remission of sins. Did Jesus shed his blood because our sins were already forgiven? Or so we could obtain forgiveness of our sins? Jesus shed his blood so we could have the remission of sins. And we repent and are baptized in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, so we can have the forgiveness of our sins. The Greek word ice is never translated. In over 54 translations of the Bible, it is never translated because of, because it doesn't mean that. Those who want to say that the word for or ice in Acts 2.38 is because our sins have already been forgiven, which means that we repent and we're baptized because our sins are already forgiven, they are going against what the Greek word means, and we need to be prepared to show that. Tell you something else that we're going to get uh, shown to us or told to us when we say that we have to be baptized in order to be saved is, well, you're telling me that, but we know that Paul was saved on the road to Damascus without being baptized. Paul was saved on the road to Damascus. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Look in Acts chapter 9. Familiar passage of what happens on that road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, beginning of verse 1. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Then he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Those who want to argue against baptism will say, Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. Do you see anything in those verses that indicate that Saul was saved? Absolutely not. I want to tell you what I do see in this passage. If Saul was already saved, then Jesus didn't know it. Look at verse 6. Verse 6, Jesus said, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. Jesus didn't know it. And certainly Paul didn't know it, because look at verse 9. He was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul wasn't rejoicing in his salvation, was he? Saul was terrified and he was upset and he was concerned. He didn't eat or drink. And finally, if Saul was saved on the road to Damascus, Ananias didn't know it. Because in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Ananias said, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Ananias said, Don't delay. You need to be baptized to have your sins forgiven. 
Certainly, Paul wasn't saved on the road to Damascus. Because if he had been saved on the road to Damascus, it would contradict so many other passages on the subject of salvation. If we interpret Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9 as Paul's salvation experience, then we need to start ripping other passages out of our Bible because we can't harmonize them. For instance, in John chapter 3, in John chapter 3, beginning of verse 3, John 3, beginning of verse 3, Jesus said you had to be born again of water. In John 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Paul wasn't baptized on the road to Damascus. We'd have to rip that out of our Bible, what Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. I want to tell you what else we'd have to rip out of our Bible. We'd have to rip Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Because Paul was saved outside of Christ if he was saved on the road to Damascus. Galatians 3, verse 27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He was not in Christ, was he, on the road to Damascus? He hadn't been baptized yet. He was saved outside of Christ. We'd have to rip out the passage that Joseph read for us, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. Because Paul was saved before he was saved, if that interpretation of Acts chapter 9 is correct. There also is an antitype which now saves us baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul could not be saved before he was baptized. Because 1 Peter 3 verse 21 tells us baptism saves us. And Mark 16, verse 16, tells us when we're saved, and it's not before baptism. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Paul was not saved on the road to Damascus. Paul needed to be baptized to wash away his sins, to be saved according to what we read throughout the Bible. Another argument that we're going to get presented to us when we say we have to be baptized in order to be saved is that baptism is a work, and we're not saved by works. You're telling me that we have to be baptized in order to be saved, as one person on the Internet not too long ago apparently reviewed us and said that we're preaching a damnable heresy if we say we have to be obedient. Well, what about that? Does the Bible teach that we're not saved by works? Well, Galatians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, as we looked at before, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9 says, Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We're not saved by meritorious works, and no one would argue that. But we are saved by being obedient. Baptism is a work of man. It is an act of obedience, but it is also a work of God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. Buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. God saves us in baptism. We submit in obedience. It's nothing that we do to earn it. But we can't be saved apart from obedience. We read that throughout the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, 
He became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Sounds like a damnable heresy to some folks who would be against what we're teaching here, but it's absolutely the truth, isn't it? The Bible over and over again tells us that God saves those who obey him. And how do we harmonize? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 tell us that we're not saved by works, lest anyone should boast, with the instruction that we have to be obedient, Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. How do we harmonize those two objects or these two ideas? Luke 17, verse 10, I believe, is how we harmonize. Luke 17, verse 10. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. I'm not earning my salvation when I submit in baptism. Nor am I earning my salvation when I repent of my past sins. Nor am I earning my salvation when I confess my faith in Christ. I'm doing what is my duty to do. And I won't be able to get to God on the day of judgment and stand before Him and say, God, you've got to let me into heaven because here's the list of all the things I've done. I've earned it. I'm trading all this for my ticket to heaven. No. At the end of the day, I'm only going to get to heaven by God's grace. But I've got to submit in obedience. You know, there's other places where you can go to show that this is a true concept. That the idea of being obedient doesn't earn something, but obedience is required. For example, in the Old Testament, the children of Israel are marching to the promised land. And the first city that they come to in the promised land is Jericho. We remember that. And Jericho has a wall around it, a nice and sturdy wall. And the children of Israel are given instruction. They're told in Joshua chapter two, verse, or chapter 6, verse 2, that God was going to give them the city of Jericho. It was going to be a gift. It was by His grace. He was giving it to them, a, a, a gift. Look at Joshua 6, verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. Jericho was given to the Israelites. Does that mean they didn't have to do anything? That it just fell in their lap? No, they had to do something. It was given to them. It was a gift of God. But Hebrews 11 verse 30 tells us the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. The children of Israel had to march around those walls one time every day for six days. Then they had to march around it seven times on the seventh day. And they had to blow those trumpets and they had to shout and then the walls came down. Now, does that mean they weren't a gift from God? Does that mean that the Jericho, they earned Jericho? No, it was given by God, wasn't it? But they still had to obey. The children of Israel had to obey. Faith was required. Works were required. I'll tell you, there was a woman in that city who could have perished, but she didn't because she had faith. And that woman was Rahab the harlot, and we read about her in Joshua chapter 2, verse 18. You know, she harbors those spies, and when, she, when they're on their way out, she says, remember me, you remember? And they said, well, here's what we'll do. Look at Joshua 2, verse 18. Unless when we come to the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household into your home, they were going to be, she was going to be saved if she met these conditions, if she did these things. She put that red cord out the window. 
and she had her family in the house with her, then she would be saved. There were things she had to do. She had to obey those instructions. But it's interesting. Notice what is said about her in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm sorry, let's go to Joshua 6, verses 23, and we'll see where she obeyed that. Joshua 6, verse 23. The young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers, and all that she had. So they brought all, out all her relatives and left them outside the camp of Israel, but they burned the city and all that was in it with fire, only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all she had. So she dwells to Israel, in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. But notice what Hebrews says about this woman. How was she saved? Hebrews 11 verse 31 says, By faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Why didn't she perish? Because of her faith. But what did she have to do not to perish? She had to obey. Faith and obedience are not contradictory concepts. They work in harmony. Baptism is a work. It's an act of obedience. It's not an act of merit that you are earning something. But we've got to be obedient to be saved. I'll tell you something else that you're going to have presented to you when you tell someone you have to be baptized in order to be saved, and it's going to be the famous person in the desert. You know, there are people in the desert who want to be baptized, we're told. What if the person is in the, in the desert and wants to be baptized and he can't? Because all that's around him is sand and other deserty things, but no water. How is that person going to be baptized? Tell you, that's a hypothetical argument, and hypothetical arguments don't prove anything. And there are different variants of this hypothetical argument. Sometimes it's someone who is in the hospital. Sometimes it is poor safety measures around the baptistry and the person who's getting ready to, be, ready to be baptized slips and falls and breaks their head open and they can't be baptized. Lots of these hypothetical situations. They don't prove anything. Hypotheticals don't prove anything. But the Internet helps with this a little bit because in 2005, in Iraq, a Marine decided he wanted to be baptized and here he is in the desert being baptized. It's possible to be baptized in the desert. But again, hypothetical arguments don't answer or prove anything. How about this? For the person who says you only have to believe in order to be saved, and he says you can't say that you have to be baptized because someone could die before they're baptized, and that proves that you don't have to be baptized. What about this? What about the person who he doesn't believe in Jesus yet, but he's on his way to a Bible study where he would learn about Jesus and believe, but he gets run over by a bus, and he can't get to that Bible study. Does that mean you don't have to believe anymore? No, you see, these hypothetical arguments don't prove anything. The man in the desert doesn't prove that we don't have to be baptized. And then there's the argument about Paul. And it's based on a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 where Paul says he was not sent to baptize. And he does say that in, Roman, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. Notice this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. You see right here, Paul admits that baptism isn't important because 
He wasn't sent to baptize. It's just not that important. All he needed to do was preach. He wasn't sent to baptize. What about that? This is not teaching us that, that baptism is not essential to salvation. Paul was addressing the idea of factions, where people were following certain people because of who had taught them the gospel and who had baptized them. And they were dividing up in groups. I'm of Peter. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. And they were told not to do that because it doesn't matter who baptizes you. But the instruction here isn't that we don't need to be baptized, that, G that Paul wasn't supposed to be baptizing when he went to go teach because if that's the case, then Paul disobeyed this. Earlier in that chapter, in verse 14, notice Paul says he had baptized Crispus and Gaius. If he wasn't really supposed to be baptizing people, if it wasn't important, then why was he baptizing folks? You see, we have to understand the language that is used here. In Acts chapter 19, in Acts chapter 19, we see that Paul did practice water baptism. In Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Then Paul said, John indeed baptized him with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Paul baptized. In he, Acts chapter 4, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 18, verse 24 in Acts chapter 18, verse 24, Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he taught, uh, spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he desired to cross into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived... He greatly helped those who believed through, the great, through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing forth that the scripture, from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Apollos was baptizing. Paul was baptizing. Peter was baptizing. They all were baptizing. Paul's not saying that baptism isn't important. He's just saying that it wasn't his primary objective. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul preached that baptism was required. We looked at this already that we were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like Christ was raised up from the dead by the, glory, from the glory, by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul said, For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul taught baptism. He taught it as being necessary. Colossians chapter 2 verse 12 that we've already looked at. In Ephesians chapter 4 verses 4 through 6 it mentioned only one baptism. So what about this argument that Christ did not send me to baptized but to te preach the gospel. This is a construction that we see throughout the New Testament. It's called the not-but construction where the emphasis is on, uh, on the but, but there's a lesser emphasis on the, the not. For example, Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach. The not-but. 
John, Jesus said in John 6, verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Jesus said, don't labor for food, but just labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. Is that what Jesus is saying? Do we all need to quit our jobs tomorrow to obey Jesus? No. Jesus says the most important thing is the food which endures to everlasting life. Put your emphasis on that and lesser emphasis on the food which perishes. Another passage in John chapter 12, verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Was this some kind of riddle that Jesus is saying here? No, it's this language, this construction here. Jesus is saying, He who believes in me believes not in me only, but in him who sent me. We add the word only, and it makes sense there. That's what this not but construction means. Jesus, Jesus did not send me to baptize only, but to preach the gospel. Jesus sent Paul to preach. That's the most important thing, right? To preach. You can't instruct someone to baptize other people if they don't want to be baptized. The most important thing was that they preach. If they, if they obeyed the gospel, then they would be baptized. Baptism is important. It is required. Paul was not saying that we don't have to be baptized in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. And finally tonight, as I know we're getting long on time, there's another argument that you may be presented with, and it is an argument from folks who like to divide up the New Testament. They're known as dispensationalists. And they try to separate the gospel into two gospels. The gospel that Peter preached to the Jews and the gospel that Paul preached to the Gentiles. And that whole argument starts in Acts chapter 15 where there's the discussion about circumcision and they realize that Peter uh, is, is effective among the Jews and Paul is effective among the Gentiles and they go their separate ways. And the argument is that Paul taught a separate gospel than Peter and that you have to look to what Paul taught about salvation since we're all Gentiles. And it's an in-depth an in uh, argument, and those who make it are very uh, grounded on their teaching on the subject, but it simply does not harmonize with what the Scriptures teach. Over and over again, Paul does refer to the gospel as my gospel. In Romans chapter 2, verse 16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. And they'll look to passages like this and say, you see, Paul's gospel was different than Peter's gospel. He said the same in Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel. Is this Paul's gospel different than Peter's? Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. Remember that Jesus Christ, the seed of David, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Over and over again, we read about the gospel being Paul's, he said. But... This idea of it being Paul's is not exclusive. You have a doctor that you go to regularly? When you're talking about your visit to the doctor, do you ever refer to your doctor as, my doctor said this, or my doctor gave me this to take? Does that mean that it's only your doctor? No, it doesn't mean that it's exclusive. Over and over again, we see this idea of my being presented in, in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24, or Romans 7, verse 4, Paul referred to Christians as my brethren. Were they only his brethren? No. You see, it's not exclusive. The language is not exclusive. 
And we know that his gospel was not exclusive either from passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, he refers to it as our gospel. His gospel was not exclusive to him. And in fact, if it is true that Paul's gospel to the Gentiles was different than the gospel to the Jews, then other passages simply cannot be harmonized. For example, Galatians chapter 1, verse 23. Galatians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul said, But they, heard, uh, they had only heard that he which persecuted us in times past now preaches the, the faith which he once tried to destroy. See, Paul, when he became a Christian, he starts preaching to Gentiles. He's preaching that gospel and that faith that he had once tried to destroy. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He was persecuting those who were of the way, who were following the gospel. But later in Acts chapter 24, verse 14, he says that he is following the way. But I, this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I so worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. Paul persecuted that way that he had been persecuted, uh, that he was now following. He was following that same gospel which he had once persecuted. In John chapter 5, verse 24. In John chapter 5, verse 24. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, John chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus tells us that we have to hear. John 5, verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who, in, in, who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Jesus said we had to hear. Paul, in the gospel that he preached, said we have to hear. Whosoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. How shall they call on him they not, who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Jesus said we had to hear. Paul said we had to hear. Jesus said we have to repent, Luke 13, 3. John, Paul said we have to repent. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Jesus said we have to confess, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, whosoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess. But from my Father who is in heaven, Paul said we have to confess in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Jesus said we have to be baptized, Mark 16, 15 and 16. Paul taught that we have to be baptized, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. Paul did not preach a different gospel than Peter a different gospel that was just his alone. Paul preached the same gospel. We have to be baptized in order to be saved. Well, a lengthy discussion tonight about baptism and the arguments against it. I hope some of those have been helpful to you. The question for you tonight is, have you been baptized? It's clear from the scriptures that it's required in order to be saved. If you've not been baptized, there's no better time than right now. If you're here and there's anything we can do to help you spiritually, will you let us know while we stand and while we sing?